I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 4 through 9. Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 9. And as you're opening your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, by way of a little bit of background, the book of Deuteronomy, the, the first five books of the Bible are the Torah, the, the, the law of Moses, the books of Moses containing the law of Moses. As we get to the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deut- in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is speaking to the generation of people that has survived the 40 years of exodus in the wilderness. So this is on the tail end of the exodus. This is at the, at the end of the wilderness wanderings, just prior to them going into the promised land. And the people that he's talking to, some of them were children when they first left Egypt, and some of them weren't even born when they first left Egypt. But now Moses calls these people to remember the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. And in chapter 5, again, just by way of background, Moses summoned all of Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and the, dec- and the laws that I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. And then in chapter 5, Moses goes on to recite the Ten Commandments that govern God's covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. Then in chapter 6, verse 4 through 9, we find the words of the Shema, a prayer, words uh, that are part of a prayer that devout Jews pray morning and evening since thousands of years ago and up to this very day, devout Jews pray the Shema twice a day. And these are the words in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And here we find what I believe are the key elements of a reliable course of life. And the first key element is having a highest value. That's what Moses said in verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. God challenged or Moses, God speaking through him, challenged Israel to value the one true God above anything else. And in Matthew twenty two thirty six, Jesus repeated the love of God is the highest value that one could pursue. In Deuteronomy thirty sixteen, I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and keep his commands and decrees, and then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. In Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20, choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life. Pursuing God is your highest value is that thing that results in the abundant living that we follow. The, the world tells you that it has something that will fill you, that will bring 
contentment to you. We all of us, God made us with this desire to be full, to know that we're doing the thing that we were made to do, that we're fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. And the world offers all manner of things that we can embrace and says, this is the thing that will make you full. This is the thing that will bring you contentment when pursuing God is the thing for which we were created. And when he becomes our highest value, when we pursue him as a value above anything else this world has to offer, then is when we experience the abundant living that God created us for. In 1 Corinthians, Paul spoke some hard things to a church in deep need of the truth that he shared with them. In chapter 7, verse 35, he said, what I am saying is for your own good. It isn't to limit your freedom. I want to help you live right and to love the Lord above all else. Valuing God doesn't subtract from life, but rather it adds to it. Before God opened my eyes to his truth, my view of Christians was that they lived extremely dull, unenjoyable, restricted, unfulfilling lives governed by a lot of rules, a lot of do's and don'ts. And what I've learned in the ensuing years since I determined to follow Christ could not be farther from the truth. My pursuit of God is highest value in my life. It's brought it's brought difficulty at moments, but it's brought great fulfillment, it's brought purpose, and it's brought a richness to life that would be absent apart from that pursuit of him as greatest value. Hudson Taylor is a name that's familiar to anyone that studied Christian history. He was the founder of the China Inland Mission back in the 1860s, and he spent decades of his life ministering to and evangelizing the people of China. His son, and he had, if I can recall correctly, eight children, four of whom died two at birth, two in infancy, four survived. One of those was his son, Howard. Howard became a doctor, and Howard and his wife, Geraldine, joined Hudson, returned to China in the 1890s to, to work alongside Hudson. Geraldine Taylor wrote of their travel and their ministry in China. She described one particular event when they were working at a mission station in Taikang. And this is what she said. In Taikang, there was a nun, a Buddhist nun, the leader of a large religious society, an influential woman in the community. And a deep resentment against the missionaries and their Western doctrine smoldered in her heart. Were they not drawing men and women away from the time-honored Buddhist teaching? She went to see them with a large following of other Buddhist nuns and acted the part of an interested inquirer. It was a time of drought in Honan province, and distress and destitution prevailed in the area. One day she saw in a flash how she could work for the undoing of the hated foreigners. She began to spread a rumor that they had large sums of relief money entrusted to them, which they ought to be giving away among the suffering people. And she promised to obtain that money for them. While Howard and Geraldine were on one of their visits to Chin Chow, she called on two single ladies that ministered with, their, with them there in Taikang. 
They had none to lend, and they told her so. She, ought, she asked them to lend her a considerable money, uh, amount of money, and they had none to lend and told her so. She left them, and she set a new report whispering through the city, far out into the country districts, professing to be the missionary's friend and confidant. She affirmed that on a certain day, every person who called at the mission station would receive the sum of 300 cash. Everyone knew her, and so they believed her word. The day arrived, and Howard and Geraldine had returned from their travels. People from throughout the countryside descended on the mission residents there at the mission statement to receive their payment. Howard and Geraldine and the two single ladies there working with them tried to explain to them that it was a, a misunderstanding, but with their expectations so high, dashed so low, the locals rioted, destroying the residents, beating the missionaries. Eventually, local officials arrived and broke up the riot. And this is what Geraldine wrote in the aftermath. As they sat down to eat their meal, surrounded by the broken remains of their earthly possessions, they realized how wonderfully they had been preserved from violent death, and a well of joy sprang up in their hearts. Geraldine spoke of it at a meeting in London three years later. She, very briefly, I want to speak of another deep and wonderful joy. She'd already spoken of the joy of complete surrender and the joy of being where you're most needed. These are troublous times in China. And I want to tell you one fact that may encourage your hearts in praying for missionaries out there. Beloved Christian friends, we've known in our experience one hour of joy so deep and so wonderful that we never expect to know the like of it again until we see our Lord face to face, unless he indeed places us again in a similar circumstance. After a riot, when our lives had been saved by a miracle, when we were sitting bruised and bleeding amidst the ruins of our home, in that hour, believe me, heaven itself was open to us, and we tasted then and afterwards a joy so marvelous that I scarcely like to speak about it here. As we realized that we've been permitted to suffer something for Christ's sake. It just dawned upon us. I cannot tell how. It came like a flash of illuminating light that we had been counted worthy, not for anything in ourselves, but from his great grace to us to suffer something for Christ's sake. No words can tell you the joy that filled our hearts. We've never known anything like it since, and we would not miss that experience out of our lives for all that you could give us. You see, God has made us for so much more than we have yet experienced. But the more that God has made us for resides in pursuing him as our highest value. And there, there are preachers preaching today that will tell you that the more that God has to offer is more of this world, more of the wealth of this world, more of the things of this world, that that will bring you contentment and fulfillment. And what I'm, hearing to, what I'm here to tell you is that the only thing that's going to bring you the contentment and the fulfillment for which God made you is the pursuit of him as your highest value, doing whatever it is he leads you, calls you, directs you to do. That's where fulfillment and contentment is found and nowhere else. And if you pursue the things of this world as opposed to God as your highest value, if you value the things of this world, 
then you will chase that fulfillment as a chasing after the wind, as Solomon said. It will never bring you that which you long for because that's not what God made you for. This was the call of Moses to a new generation of Israelites that they were made for more than the wilderness. But Moses' call meant nothing to those who really had not yet left Egypt. A generation of Israelites died in the desert, in the wilderness, because when difficulty arose amongst them, they longed for Egypt. The same is true today. There's a great many that call themselves believers or Christians or lovers of God. Some would even say they are followers of Christ. But the way that they live is in direct contradiction to the way of Jesus. These are Christians who are still lovers of the world and the ways of the world. God is not their highest value. The world is a competing highest value. They've not allowed God to raise to that place of highest value. They say God's a high value. Or God, they may say God is the highest value. And yet the way that they live demonstrates clearly that the things of the world are still as high a value to them as God is. 1 John 2.15 is clear. You cannot love the Father and love the world at the same time. You must choose. You must make a choice. And you must choose God above all else as your highest value if you ever expect that, that fulfillment, that contentment that you long for, that God made you for. The second key element is a guiding principle that is found here. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 says, These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Remember these commands to which he refers are the Ten Commandments of the previous chapter. The first of the Ten Commandments calls us to love and honor God alone, to serve no other, for he is the only God. And then the remaining commands instruct us to love and respect our family and our neighbors. Jesus reduced ten to two. He said, love God alone with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Just as the Samaritan loved and cared for an injured man he had never met before, a man for whom the Samaritan interrupted his schedule and spent his resources, a stranger who he put ahead of himself. The New Living Translation renders verse 6 this way. You must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Valuing God above all else should influence everything you do. He's given us direction to love him by loving others, even those that don't love in return, and especially those in our society who are marginalized, the underprivileged, those in need, like the widows and orphans, the lepers, those who are the untouchables of society, the injured man in the story of the Good Samaritan, the sick, the infirmed, the incarcerated. Jesus said, when you have loved one of the least of these, you've loved me. When you've done for one of the least of these, you've done for me. When you've expressed love by giving, by ministering to, by sacrificing for one of the least of these, you've loved me. That's our expression of love to God. This is our guiding principle. Those commands to love God and demonstrate the love of God by an uninhibited love 
of others or that to which we're to be wholeheartedly committed. Choosing to love God wholeheartedly, loving others in the same way, is the guiding principle that will change everything that you say and do. From the way that you spend your time to the way that you spend your resources. This is the evangelistic impulse that God has shared his love with us and that we're likewise to share his love with others. And let me point out here that mere words mean little unless love incarnate accompanies them. You see, Jesus came with words, but he came in flesh ministering to people that he loved. He sacrificed all of heaven to come and share with us of God's love. And so, too, as, as we go forth, we can't just share with people the words of the gospel, that God loves them and cares for them without incarnating the love of God in the actions that we live, the actions that we take. The third element, this highest value and this guiding principle, is that the message of these two is to be conveyed. The highest value of loving God above all else, the guiding principle of loving others as an expression of love for God is a message that we're to pass generationally. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that generational passing means the generations of families, clearly, but it also means a generation of disciples, that generationally we pass this as more mature Christians to those that come into the faith and now are less mature disciples or followers of Christ, that we're passing this message, that we're conveying this message of a highest value and a guiding principle to the generations of Christians that are coming behind us. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 7, Moses said, impress these things, these commands, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Parents have the responsibility to pass on their high value of God to children. Christians have a responsibility to pass on their high value of God to others as God provides the opportunity for us. In Deuteronomy 4.9, Moses said, Be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. And so we communicate, we teach these things, we impress these things in two ways. In Proverbs 5, 1 and 2, Solomon said, My son, pay attention to my wisdom and listen well to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. He said, listen to my words. These are words of wisdom. And so we speak these things of value to future generations, subsequent generations. I want to suggest to you that this requires a relationship of mutual respect. Um, I was went into the, the CVS pharmacy up the corner of US 54 and 41 uh, recently over the course of the last couple of weeks. And when I got out of my car, there was a fellow with a t-shirt on that had emblazoned on it, Jesus saves. And he had a Bible in his hand. And he was yelling at the cars 
on this eight-lane highway at 54 and, you know, four lanes, four lanes, you know, eight lanes going north and south on 41, eight lanes going east and west on 54, and he's standing at the corner in rush hour traffic yelling at these people that they need to repent of their sins. You need to repent and follow Jesus. They've all got their windows up and got their AC going, their radios on and stuff, and I you know, I wanted to walk out and, and ask the guy, do you really think you're, you're having any effect here at all, you know? You, you, you share the gospel with people you have relationship with, and that's, that's not to denigrate. I mean, God can work in any way he wants to work. Maybe somebody drove by that guy that day and saw that Jesus saves and him shaking the Bible and was convicted of something that someone else had shared with him, and God worked by a convergence of circumstances and situations. God used that individual out there. I'm not going to discount the reality that God may have used the individual, but it just looked to me like a lot of time and effort that I had little confidence was going to see much result because there's got to be relationship, and that relationship needs to be a relationship of mutual trust and respect. There's got to be some basis, some grounds upon which your words have meaning, a foundation for your words. And if I don't know you, or if that foundation is crumbling, if there's nothing there to suggest that your words are trustworthy, or you don't respect me, then your words are not going to carry much meaning. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, and I speak to the fathers specifically, fathers do not provoke your children to anger by the way that you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Don't treat them with anger and incite them against you, but rather bring them up with discipline and instruction, impressing upon them these things of the Lord. God is highest value, and loving others is guiding principle. Impress these things upon your children. When you lie down and when you get up, when you sit at the table, when you walk along the road, be impressing these things upon your children. I will be very honest with you. As a young father, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I, when, when CJ came home and he bore the brunt, as a lot of first children do, of a lot of bad parenting, they gave no manual with how to raise this thing. They stuck in your arms and sent you home from the hospital with. You knew a little bit about the nutrition, how you could get them to grow but the emotional, the relational, the spiritual components of how to raise a child, there was no handbook given to me. And so I, I feared that I often provoked my children by the way that I treated them. That, that was primarily because my parenting as a young parent was really more about me than it was about my children. What I wanted from them was a blind obedience, and at times I was... I was harsh in a way that did not reflect godliness in any way, shape, or form. And Debbie used to say to me, the boys will never respect you unless they believe that you respect them. And my response to her was always, I don't care. I don't care whether they think I respect them or not. They're going to respect me. And you can make someone obey if you're bigger than they are, if you can overpower them, if you have control over them, you can make someone obey you at least temporarily, but they'll never respect you. 
And respect is, is critical in this transaction of impressing things upon your children. Instead of instilling God's truth in the hearts of my children, often the words I spoke were words of anger over offense that I perceived. Words spoken loud, words spoken harsh. Once again, I'm not suggesting that we allow the children to take over leadership of the home and that they're on equal footing with parents. I don't see that at all. Sometimes in the course of raising children, there's some tough love that's required, and I meted out plenty of that, you know. Uh, but again, fathers and mothers impressing these things on your children in respectful ways so that they know, your children know you love them and you respect them as creations of God will engender respect, the respect that you desire from your children, the respect that will make the words that you speak to them all the more meaningful will engender that kind of respect coming back. Impress these things on your children by talking about them at home and away, morning and evening by your speech. Let your children know your highest value and your guiding principle in all the things that you say. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8, tie them. Again, we're speaking about the commandments. Tie them as symbols on your hands. And today, in the Jewish community, you will still find devout Jews that will bind phylacteries or prayer boxes to their hands with leather cords, boxes that have scriptures, the commands in them. They will literally bind the commands to their hands. I, I don't believe that's the implication of what God wanted the people to understand at this point. I think the implication is, is that we bind the scripture, we bind those commands to our hands so that they affect everything that we do with our hands. The work that we do with our hands is affected by the commandments of God. The love that we communicate with our hands through our hugs, through our touch, through the, the stroke of an arm, the, all of those, everything that we do, the work of our lives. We talk about the we work with our hands. Well, we work with our full body, but the hands represent that. Everything that we do with our body, the work of our lives is impacted by those commands because those commands are bound to our hands. We bind them to our hands and we bind them to our foreheads, bind them on your foreheads. And again, still today, you'll see devout Jews that have phylactery, prayer boxes, bound to their foreheads, little boxes with the commands of God inside them. And I want to suggest to you that binding the commands to your forehead means that they influence everything that you think. Every thought that goes through your mind is influenced by the very commands of Christ. He is the highest value, loving others as your guiding principle, that those things affect every thought that goes through your mind. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. I don't see any point in purpose in writing something on the door frame of the house, on the gate, on the door that is the entrance to the house, though there are people that do that. I don't see any point in doing that unless, more importantly, the individuals that live in that house are living out that highest value and that guiding principle in a way that anyone who knows who lives in that house recognizes that's who those people are. 
that the people who know the ones that live in the house don't need to see it written on the doorpost and the gate leading up to the house because they know it's on the hearts and the minds of the people living there. The point is, is that everything that takes place within your domicile, within the place that you live or the place that you work or wherever you are, that those things would be influenced by God is the highest value and loving others is your guiding principle. We live our values daily is the point. It requires discipline on the part of a follower of Christ to communicate values and principles effectively. Your life has got to be aligned with your values. It's one thing to, to talk about what's important. It's another thing entirely to do, to live the things of importance. So on this Father's Day, I see dads in here. How are you doing? How are you doing, Dad? Do you subscribe to the highest value of a life in pursuit of God? Along with its guiding principle of loving others is your expression of love for God. Are you living the incarnated love of God, surrendering yourself and your resources in a way that others can see clearly what your highest value and your guiding principle are, especially your children, especially the ones coming along behind you that are, that are watching you and everyone else around you. Are you experiencing the fullness of God intended by our maker because you're pursuing that highest value and the love of others is your guiding principle because ultimately these are things that are supposed to bring fullness to life, things that I can share with you. I have indeed experienced, how are you doing with these things? Are you distracted by the world in a way that the world competes with God as your highest value? It, it undermines, it waters down, it dilutes the things you say and do in a way that doesn't honor God. Are you struggling for that highest value? struggling with the guiding principle of loving others because they're so dead gum hard to love. I guess the thing I would say to you is, is you don't have it within you to do that. Only the Spirit of God can do that, but that's found in our surrender to the Spirit of God who gives us the strength to do the things that we cannot do ourselves. Let me ask all of you to stand. I was speaking with, with someone earlier today, and they were sharing with me of a loss that they experienced in their family. And as I prayed with them, I acknowledged to them that, you know, without great love, we don't experience great loss. That when we love someone greatly and we lose that person, they pass, they're gone from our lives, then there's a great loss because there was a great love. And the more we love an individual, the greater the love is, the greater the loss is. The less the love, the less the loss. No love for an individual no loss. Somebody passes on the other side of the world that I never had the opportunity to know and someone to read it in the newspaper. I mean, it's no loss. It's no loss to me because I never knew that person. I want to suggest to you that the same thing applies with regard to this business of being full and pursuing God is our highest value and loving others is our guiding principle. That if you pursue God, is your highest value and love others is your guiding principle in your life. The more you do that, 
the greater will be the fullness in your life. You love him completely as highest value and you love others completely, his guiding principle, you will experience the fullness of life. You allow the world to compete with God as highest value and, and, and your love of others is diluted as guiding principle. You, you still want to follow God. You still claim Christ as Savior. Then, man, the, there, there may be a little bit of fullness, but there's something missing. And you know there's something missing. You throw God out of the equation. You let the world be your highest value. And listen. If love of others is not your guiding principle, the only thing that's left is love of self is guiding principle. The world is highest value. Love of self is guiding principle. There is absolutely no fulfillment to be found there. That is the truest, most complete chasing after the wind that there is. It's precisely what Solomon spoke of in Ecclesiastes. So where are you today? Do you want to live full? Because it resides in a pursuit of God for love of others. You've never put your faith and trust in Christ before. You've never understood that that's what being a follower of Christ is all about, where fullness resides. Then today would be a great day to, to make that decision, to follow Christ. I'm going to be standing here at the front. You respond. God is here. God is here. God loves you and cares about you. God wants you full and complete. God wants to give you strength that you don't have in yourself to do the things that he's called you to do.